Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us in 2024. This is our first episode of the year, and I just want to say Happy New Year. Today, we're discussing two topics relevant to pediatrics, pediatric UTI published in Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice and Pediatric Community Acquired Pneumonia, which was published in Evidence-Based Urgent Care. Both very important topics and something we're seeing a lot of right now. So I hope you enjoy this review and be sure to go to ebmedicine.net and get your CME credits if you're a subscriber. And now let's jump into that episode. My intro story is that Yesterday at nap time, my oldest, most brilliant child came out to me and was like, dad, I swallowed a quarter. And I was like, I thought we were old for this, but okay. I was like, are you sure it wasn't a button battery or magnet? And he's like, I'm sure it was one of these toy coins that came with this like game that we have. Okay. And it's like about like between a nickel and a quarter. And I was like, okay, do you feel it anywhere? And he's right here. In his chest. I was Uh. like, that's not great. I had him drink some Gatorade and he goes, now I feel it in my stomach. And I said. And we're going to be all right, son. If it changes, you let me know. <laughs> Needless to say, mom, not impressed with my clinical diagnostic and acumen. Yes. Mostly angry because somehow this is definitely my fault. It's metal? It was metal. It's like a metal coin. I remember reading an article about using a handheld metal detector to ascertain if a foreign body had been moving through the small bowel as opposed to getting serial x-rays. God, that'd be so funny. Today, I actually thought about testing to see if the coin was magnetic. But I wanted to do it where my kids couldn't see. So they were like holding magnets up to it. Because <laughs> then they'd like pinch it to his abdominal wall. And then God, I think that's God, a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> but if you bring him to the ER, you could borrow the little handheld metal detector from the garden. Be like, it's still there. I honestly thought about doing that too. And then I was just like, and it was like, there were so many layers of this that I was just like, I'm just going to try to not make a big deal out of this. Because yeah. it's. It wasn't just, a laundry pod. It wasn't a button battery. It's all good. <laughs> he ate a gigantic bag of popcorn like 20 minutes later. And I was like, yeah, we're going to be all right. He's fine. My wife goes, hey, at least he like wasn't choking and came out and checked in with us. And I was like, boy, yeah. now that you say that, I hadn't really thought about how much more afraid I should have been. Hey, there you go. See, a little knowledge. It's got so long way to scare <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Sam Ashu, joined by my co-host, T.R. Eckler, back again, doubleheader, couldn't be more excited. Today, we are talking about two articles, maintaining that string of articles on pediatrics. We are going to highlight the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article on UTI and the Evidence-Based Urgent Care article on Pediatric Community-Acquired Pneumonia, both very common presentations in the emergency department and both just packed with a bunch of information. I was actually quite surprised by how much there is in evidence for both of these conditions out there in children. If you are not already aware, pediatric UTI is one of the common presentations we see in the emergency department, but I think even more common than that would be the febrile child who were debating whether or not has a UTI. And I think that was excellently covered in this article. This is the January 2024 article in Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice, authored by Dr. Tischberg and Dr. Kasulis. And it begins with the traditional epidemiology and pathophysiology, which I don't really want to focus a whole bunch on. Just know that the approach to pediatric UTI is very much age and presentation dependent. And so as you read this article, you will get three different versions of what you're supposed to do, all based on the child's age. 
And I think if there is one article where the clinical pathway is the most helpful piece of information, this is the one because it begins with the child presents with symptoms consistent with a possible UTI, whatever that is, whether it's pain, dysuria, fever, something is off. And then the, the first question is, how old are they? Are they less than two months old and have a fever? Are they between two and 24 months old and have a fever? Or are they over 24 months old with urinary or some kind of abdominal symptom? And that's a very helpful distinction because the approach differs quite vastly depending on the age of the child. And the clinical pathway here, I think, is the go-to page because the authors do an outstanding job of discussing all three of those different presentations based on age. And, and it can get a little confusing if it's not something you're accustomed to doing. They even address the fact that the American Academy of Pediatrics has made changes in their recommendations and their pathways from 2011 to 2016. And then those were removed. And now the 2021 guidelines for clinical practice from the AAP are really primarily about febrile infants and for children between two and 24 months. And so if they're over two years of age, you don't even have AAP guidelines for that age group. You're looking at other societies. And so it can get a little confusing. And I thought they did an excellent job tackling all of those sources of information and putting all that information into this article. Completely agree. I think the only thing I pulled from that etiology and pathophysiology to start was just this idea that 7% of younger kids and 7.8% of older kids kind of using two years of age as that cutoff between the two are going to have a urinary tract infection. And that's febrile kids coming to the hospital. And that gave me a good sense that if they tell me anything that's concerning that it could be a urinary tract infection or I just, I haven't found a source, this is a place that you've got to check. Yeah, and then your typical culprits are still, like the majority of these are still caused by E. coli, but there are some other players, things like Klebsiella, Enterococcus, Proteus, and Pseudomonas, all of which cause atypical presentations or complicated UTIs because they alter the urinalysis and you might not get nitrites. And so in that scenario, it can be a little deceiving and the antibiotic treatment is a little bit different as well. And so you just have to be aware that the majority of these are E. coli, and that's what guides that first-line antibiotic treatment, but there are some other players. And then there was this naming convention. So we talk about cystitis, which is infection of the bladder. We talk about pyelonephritis, which is infection of the kidney. And in older children and adults, that's usually evidence for infection in the urine plus some kind of systemic infectious symptom, whether that's fever or they look clinically ill. Ultimately, if you're going to get a definitive diagnosis, you do something like the imaging study, which is the dimer capto-succinic acid scan or the DMSA scan, which honestly nobody is getting in the emergency department. And in most cases, it's clinically treated as pyelonephritis. But the one caveat there is that if you're dealing with a febrile infant and you have a febrile UTI, that doesn't necessarily mean they have pyelonephritis. So unlike older children and adults where we just assume, oh, okay, fever plus UTI equals a kidney infection, that's not necessarily the case in a younger child. They could just have cystitis or a bladder infection and a fever, which again, it's all age-based. So you just have to keep in mind, ask yourself the first question, how old is this person? And then we'll move on to treatment. So even the naming convention can be a little bit confusing there because we use terms like febrile UTI, which are not synonymous with pyelonephritis if it's a younger infant. When we talk about the differential diagnosis, there is a great table there, table one, which really just drives home the fact that, yes, there are some common characteristic presentations for UTI, dysuria, 
hematuria, frequency, and flank pain, all of which we classically associate with UTI. But in children, you can get dysuria from chemical irritants or soaps or detergents. They can have vulvovaginitis or retain vaginal foreign bodies. So you got to keep your differential a little bit broad, especially in that younger population. And so they did a, a good job of summarizing all of that, including things like diabetes mellitus, which is going to give you urinary frequency from hyperglycemia, not from infection. So something to keep in mind. Also, if you're dealing with an adolescent population, they did a good job driving home that sexually transmitted infection might be in the differential and may be the cause for that presentation opposed to just a simple cystitis. So it is important to obtain that history from your patient and to know that in adolescence, that questioning is going to be a little bit more broad. We always talk about the pre-hospital care, and really this is quite short in this article, but they stressed one message, and that's that if you are an EMS crew and you're called for a febrile infant, you must know that if they're under the age of two months, this person needs to go to the hospital, whether or not they have a fever while you're there. If there's a history of a fever, and we use 100.4 as a cutoff, if there's a history of a temperature at 100.4 or higher from a parent and the child is under two months of age, they need to come to the emergency department and that person gets evaluated with everything we have to look at UTI, bacteremia, and meningitis. And that's the most important thing you could do as far as pre-hospital care goes. And then when they're in emergency department and you're looking at history, this is where we start to break it up by age group. So you've got infants under two months, children two months to two years, and then children over two years and adolescents. And what you ask is going to depend on their age. So starting with infants under two months, in this age group, uncircumcised boys have a UTI prevalence of 21% compared with 2% in circumcised boys and 5% in girls. So knowing whether or not they're circumcised is very important. You're going to figure that out on exam, but you can get that in history. Also important, if they have a temperature over 102.2 Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius, that increases their prevalence of UTIs. So that puts them in 16% versus 7% for those who have a temperature lower than that. So it's important to ask about fever, and it's important to ask about their circumcision status when you're getting that history from the parents. If they're between the ages of two months and two years, temperature is still a risk factor if it's over 102.2 or 39 degrees Celsius. The duration of fever matters. So if it's been going on for longer than 48 hours, that's another risk factor. Girls in this age population under two years are considered to be at high risk and boys who are uncircumcised are also considered to be high risk. So you need to know that information again when you're asking the history. For the population who's over two years, then you can rely on some of the more common symptoms, the history of dysuria, urinary frequency, abdominal pain, maybe flank pain or incontinence. And then in adolescence, you just need to know about their sexual history as well. There is one tool that the authors pointed out, which I find to be exceptionally helpful. This is the UTI Calc. That's U-T-I-C-A-L-C dot pit dot E-D-U, which comes from the University of Pittsburgh. It's an online calculator that will ask you six questions and then give you an actual percent risk for UTI, which can help guide you in that decision-making for, is it worthwhile going after a urine sample in this patient? That's an exceptionally helpful tool. It's at uticalc.pit.edu, and it's a free tool to use, so bookmark that on your mobile device and use it at the bedside. Exceptionally helpful. Yeah, they called it the UTI risk calculator, and I think it's something that 
that I'd want to use that if I knew really convinced parents, we need to get a good urine on this child. I think that's a nice way of showing them exactly how concerned I was. And then it also asks you some of the same questions that we ask all children. So there are some things that will increase your risk for UTI, like a history of neurogenic bladder, if they have a history of bladder or bowel dysfunction, if they have chronic constipation, if they have anything other than just a normal child history in general, that usually increases their risk for UTI. Recent antibiotic use included as well because you get resistant organisms and that can affect your antibiotic regimen if you're going to treat. So you want to know the answers to all of those questions and just keep in mind that the younger they are, the less history is going to be available and the more important circumcision history becomes. I find the question of have you ever had an ultrasound for like urinary issues to be a high yield one because a lot of times parents won't always give me something from some of the other kind of questions, but then they'll be like, oh yeah, we had an ultrasound and there was some reflux or something. So it's just something that they, it sticks in their brain and they tend to be able to remember it. And it escalates my feeling of, all right, this is a kid that I need to be more cautious. About. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the other questions we constantly ask ourselves as well is, should I be trying to obtain a urine sample in this child who I think has a viral illness? And that's addressed also very well by the authors. They quoted some of the prospective multi-center published studies uh, as recently as 2021 that found an incidence of UTI as high as 5% in infants. So this is age 2 to 12 months with clinical symptoms of bronchiolitis. This held true in RSV. This was a little bit lower in influenza at about 2.4% and really drives home the point that if you're looking at a febrile infant who has symptoms that is under the age of 12 months, even though they have signs of viral illness, you should still consider UTI as a possible source or even just as a concomitant infection because that percent risk is high enough that you can miss a significant amount of UTIs by attributing all of their symptoms to the viral illness. The authors did also point out that there is no good data between ages one and two years. All of the data in this area is really for children who are 12 months and younger. And so you're at your discretion once they get past that one-year mile marker. Just one more age to keep in mind when you're uh, trying to decide what to do next. When it comes to physical examination, this is primarily where you're going to be looking for things like, are they circumcised? Are they ill-appearing? Do they have tenderness or pain? And looking at their vital signs, you might be able to tell that there is some scarring from previous surgeries or uh, operations they might have undergone in infancy if there is a guardian who doesn't know much about this patient. You might be able to assess for costovertebral angle or flank tenderness, depending on the age of the patient. Certainly, that's not going to be something you're going to pick up in an infant or a very young child. But equally important is the genitourinary examination, looking for other sources that might lead to the urinary symptoms, and to keep in mind that your adolescent patient should be getting a pelvic examination if they're sexually active, and that is a possibility in your differential diagnosis. When it comes to urinalysis, when it comes to urinalysis, this is what I got the most out of this article, because so much of the getting a good urinalysis on a patient and how much you can rely on that information, depends on how clean the sample was and what method it was obtained by, and then even how it was treated in the lab. So I, I find this to be this simple. They had a study they talk about in here. If you have a child that has adequate cleaning before they give you a midstream urine, they still have a contamination rate of 7.8%. But if they're not adequately cleaned, you jump that to 23.9%. 
So you have to make sure, especially if you're worried about a kid and that you're really trying to get a midstream urine, that you get a clean sample and they're clear on how to clean and clear how to get a midstream urine. Then we look at getting a catheter urine for kids that are either too small or too ill or can't give you a sample. They talk about catheterization and they talk about suprapubic aspiration. In my residency, suprapubic aspiration was always something that our old peds attendings that really had done everything would tell us how to do, but it was always that last line we wouldn't get to. I really loved how they approached bag urines versus catheterization in this article because they basically said, look, a bag urine, if it's contaminated, means you now need to get a clean sample to see if there's a urinary tract infection or not. And that's the way that I'm going to start offering this to patients when they come in and to parents when they bring me their child. I'm worried about a urinary infection in your child. We can either get a bag urine and see what it looks like, but if it's dirty, we're going to have to get a catheter or we can go to a catheter right now. What would be your preference? I'm comfortable with either one, as long as you're willing to wait for us to get two samples if we need to. I really enjoyed just because I think we live in a magical time, as my kids that watch a lot of Wow in the World would tell you, that there's always new studies and new tricks and things that are coming out. I loved the quick wee method. I thought it was fantastic. As a loyal watcher of Bluey, and now my children ask if they can take a bush wee when we're out in public, and I'm like, no, you can't go pee in the bushes right now. The quick wee is, sounds awesome. And like one of those magic tricks as an ER doctor where you can't get a urine, and all you do is come in and swab some cold gauze above the baby's bladder and have a cup ready. And all of a sudden, like you're a magician and you've got a sample. I, I also really enjoyed some of their other like methods of standing the baby up and giving a little massage in the back. And I just felt that, that these were worth doing because I think there's a lot of times where you can't get blood or you can't get urine on a child and it really just drags your shift down. And these are great just tips and tools to keep in your back pocket. Yeah. I think the last thing I would note is when we're talking about adolescents and sexually transmitted infections, ideally, if you're looking to test them for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and you want to use a urine sample, that should be a dirty catch. So you've got to make sure that they're giving you a dirty catch and then a clean catch. Or I've had obstetricians recommend basically you get a clean catch when they arrive and then a dirty catch on the way out the door that you follow up because that's going to give you the clearest idea of what exactly you could be dealing with in their bladder and then in their urethra or some kind of cervicitis, something like that. The other piece I would add is that depending on how your lab treats the urine, if they're centrifuging your urine and then doing the analysis or not centrifuging it, it can change your results. And I've definitely felt like there was times where I thought a patient had a urinary tract infection and the urine came back looking much better than I thought. And I worried that was a centrifuge urine that wasn't adequately either mixed or treated after that. So I think that's a good thing to check with your lab. And if you're getting a centrifuge urine and you have a high suspicion, if the urine looked a little better than you thought, then I think adding a culture on for those urines is totally in the case. Great. Yeah, that's a fantastic summary. There are great pictures. There are figure one and figure two in the article, which show you the quick wee method and the new stimulation techniques to obtain midstream urine and newborn techniques. And they did drive home one point that I'll make sure to reiterate. Now, you already said this, but when you get a bag specimen, if it's contaminated, you're going after something cleaner. You can't send the culture on the bag specimen. So it can be the initial step and if it's negative and you have a low suspicion, then maybe you don't have to go for something more invasive. Interestingly, it has been studied and it does not cause a significant delay in their length of stay in the ED, which I thought was an evidence to help support the parents who don't necessarily want you to cat their child just as soon as they hit the door. So if they're lower risk, 
maybe your suspicion isn't as high. You can get the bag urine as a kind of first step, but don't send the culture based on that specimen. If you're going to send the culture, get that cat specimen or the suprapubic aspiration. All right, let's talk about some other labs that you might obtain. So blood cultures is another one of these tests that you might obtain. And obviously, if it's a febrile infant and they're less than the age of two months, this is routine. You're culturing everything you can get your hands on. If they're between the age of two months and 24 months, there is less data. And there's also a lower risk for bacteremia. So it's not mandatory. You don't have to do it. Certainly, if the child is toxic or ill-appearing, this is someone you want to get blood cultures from. If they're febrile and not well-appearing, then absolutely consider blood cultures. But it's not mandatory. It is something that you should be getting if they're under that two-month age cutoff. And then if they're older, they're adolescents or they're older children, that's left up to you to decide if they're toxic or ill-appearing enough to justify needing blood cultures. The next question we ask ourselves is who needs a lumbar puncture and whether or not there's concomitant meningitis. And for this answer, if they're under 28 days, you're going to be getting all fluids to culture. If they're between 29 and 60 days with a UTI and are clinically well-appearing, you don't have to go after the CSF to test it because their risk for concomitant meningitis is low. And if they're older, that's all guided by your clinical examination and whether or not they have symptoms and signs of meningitis. So there's the very young, less than 28 days, you're going to get that CSF. If they're in that window of 29 to 60 days, it's not mandatory. And then the question becomes when to treat. The authors of the article quoted several studies. One of them noted that the presence of bacteria on gram stain is the most accurate for predicting UTI with the highest sensitivity and specificity, 91% and 96%. So if you're working somewhere where your lab is going to give you a gram stain from the urine, that's exceptionally helpful and something you can rely on. If they have a large quantity of leukesterase in the urine, that's a surrogate marker for white blood cells. It has a sensitivity of about 79% and a specificity of 87%, so not the best, but still helpful. And important to keep in mind that nitrites are a byproduct of gram-negative bacteria, which... Again, most of the time at C. coli, you're going to get positive nitrites, but there are those other organisms, those ones that can cause atypical or complicated UTIs that are not going to give you nitrites. So you can't rely on the absence of nitrites to tell you that there is no UTI. Certainly, if you have nitrites in the urine, the specificity is very good. So that's 98%. The, the sensitivity, again, not as good because not all organisms are going to give you that positive nitrite. And then the gold standard, which of course is the culture. There is a good table, again, in this section, this is on page nine, diagnostic accuracy of the components of a rapid urinalysis for the diagnosis of UTI, which breaks down for you all of the individual elements of a typical urinalysis and how sensitive or specific they are with the highest specificity going to the presence of nitrites and or the presence of both leukesterase and nitrites and the highest sensitivity going to gram stain. Everything else gets you in that 70 to 80% ballpark. So nothing is 100%, but the more of these things you have on your urinalysis, the more confidence you can have in saying, yes, this is a true UTI. And what we're trying to ascertain here, is this just back to urea? And are we treating something that isn't actually an infection? There are some children who can have colonization. They can have bacteria in their urine without symptoms especially if they have something like indwelling catheters, neurogenic bladder, or conditions where they have frequent UTIs or are being cast frequently. Sometimes you will find bacteria in the urine and it can be 
hard to distinguish. And so the more of these elements that you have on your urinalysis, the more helpful it is. Again, the gold standard is greater than 50,000 colony forming units on your culture, but you're not going to get that back in the emergency department. Interestingly, that threshold is lower if you actually did go get a suprapubic aspiration. You only need 1,000 colony forming units there. But if you got a cath specimen, it's 50,000. And if you did a clean catch, it's actually 100,000. So the bar is set much higher. And all of that is summarized in table three on page 10. So a great section, things to keep in mind. Typically, your lab is going to guide you as they give you these results with some guidelines. And they're pretty good about knowing this is a pediatric patient. But in case you're working in an emergency department that isn't presenting you with that information, there are different cutoffs depending on how it is you obtain that urine. I think the only thing you didn't talk about was basically the idea of sterile pyuria, meaning someone that's got white blood cells, but no infection. I think, again, in that population, like you said, someone that's got a catheter, someone that's got frequent UTIs, you want to wait for the culture results. You want to get as much information as you can before you throw antibiotics at that kid. If it's someone that's sick and you don't have a choice, that's understandable, but it's always going to be something where the more culture data you can get, the better it's going to be. I found it really enlightening just the how much, you know, especially in kids, they're not going to build up nitrates because they empty their bladder too frequently or the different bacteria, some of them won't even have a response because they don't make as robust of an immune response. So you won't get leucasterase built up on those. And I think that mirrors my experience in kids that their UAs, the dip doesn't look as bad, but then the micro looks significantly worse. And that's why I think from where we're having to make a decision point, it's good to wait for both of those. Yeah. Also, the sterile pyuria can sometimes be a marker for something else, some other disease process like appendicitis where they mentioned Kawasaki disease or systemic lupus, nephrolithiasis, foreign bodies, sexually transmitted infections. Again, it all depends on the age, but it's just one more reason to broaden your differential and keep other things in mind if you happen to notice that, hey, we see a bunch of white blood cells, but not much else is popping up on here. Maybe this isn't a true sign of infection. All right. And then the next category is treatment. So now we've got someone who has an infection and we're going to initiate treatment. How soon do we need to start that treatment? They have a positive culture or if they're symptomatic, the recommendation is ideally within 48 hours after fever onset. Obviously, if they're in the emergency department, we're making that decision in a much more acute window. But just know that if you're not sure and you sent a urine for culture and the urinalysis isn't all that convincing, you've got some time Then a well-appearing child, assuming they're not in that newborn period, not 28 days or less. You've got some time to make that decision. It doesn't have to be made immediately. The route of administration for antibiotics, we love our IV and our IM injections in the emergency department, but it doesn't have to be given that way. Oral antibiotics are just as good. So if you're not going to admit this person to the hospital, you don't have to give them an IM dose of anything. You can certainly start them on oral antibiotics. Typically, your course of therapy is going to be somewhere between four to seven days, and you're going to extend that if they have risk factors like prior UTIs or if you think that there might be early pyelonephritis involved, depending on the age group, you can certainly extend that window. But your typical course of therapy is going to be four to seven days with a follow-up check, especially if they're in that young age group. They're going to need to see their pediatrician very soon for a repeat examination. And if you're treating pyelonephritis, the typical course of therapy is 10 to 14 days. The question becomes, what is it that I need to be giving this child? And there's a great table, antibiotic medications for treatment of UTI on page 12. Cephalexin is the number one suggested starting antibiotic or amoxicillin clavulonate or sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim. So one of those three 
is the starting antibiotic for five to seven days. If you're treating pyelonephritis, you're going to escalate to something that's a little bit more broad spectrum, cefuroxime or cefpidoxime. And then there are the IV preparations if you're going to be putting that person in the hospital or if they look toxic. So we're starting with cephalexin or augmentin or Bactrim orally to begin with. And the typical course is going to be five to seven days. This is the only point that I would disagree with the article on. And I would tell you, this is my first disagreement with one of the articles where I've gone off script. So I think I'm allowed at least one a year. I think that four times a day, Keflex, as a parent and a patient, I'm not sure how much compliance there is with that. And the pharmacokinetics of Keflex really are that it is out of your system within four to six hours. You've got to keep redosing it. I think that Ceftonir deserves a place in this discussion, especially for urinary tract infections, just a once a day dose at 14 milligrams per kilogram. And I also think that then my first thing would be either be Augmentin or then if the parents said, oh, they're allergic to penicillin, then I'd be looking to Ceftonir as opposed to trying to go four times a day Keflex or go into a, a Bactrim given the, the resistance. But again, you have to also keep in mind that all antibiotic resistance is local. So you got to know your local antibiotogram when you're making these decisions and, and try to talk to your pediatricians to see what they're having success and not success with in the community because it's a great thing to have your finger on the pulse of. Yeah, very well said. And honestly, making sure that the parents are actually going to give the drug is just as important as making the right selection. So that's a very important piece of information to know and a good conversation to have with the parent. Can you do this four times a day? Because there are some other options. <laughs> I'm not sure I can. So if you can, cheers. That's right. It's a good, it's a good, honest discussion, especially in your household. What do you have, like six children? You can't even keep track of which one has the UTI. You're like, I don't know, which one am I supposed to give this to? <laughs> I, I like to imagine realistic expectations of how much time the parents have to accomplish these tasks. That's right. That's right. There is a discussion about children with special conditions, things like neurogenic bladder or known vesicoureteral reflux. We won't get into that today, but just know that they're at higher risk. They're often followed by urologists. Some of them are on bacterial prophylaxis to prevent UTI. You just got to keep that in mind when you're going to treat a UTI. They've already been on one drug. You're not just going to give them more of the same drug. You're going to have to change it while you wait for a culture. And culture becomes exceptionally important in that population because they're at higher risk for antibiotic resistance. Always worth trying to make a phone call to those specialists, especially in daytime hours, because often the culture that you want, they already have. And, and they can tell you really what that kid's been growing and what they think would be your best first step with antibiotics and if they think they need to come in or not. And then at the end of the article, there's a time and cost-effective strategy section where the authors are really just reminding us about that pathway and how to approach the decision-making with the parent about a bag versus a calf specimen. Also reminding you that if the child is well-appearing and able to tolerate oral therapy, you don't have to give IV or IM doses or even put them in the hospital as long as they're able to take the oral medication and then follow up as you instructed. And then another reminder that those with risk factors, especially the reflux or the neurogenic bladder, are at higher risk, and you should be getting that culture to guide therapy and changing that antibiotic therapy if they're on prophylaxis. And don't forget the sexually transmitted infections in that adolescent population. And that's really it for the decision-making when it comes to UTIs. Now, we boiled this way down. This article is just packed full of information, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but there is really just an exceptional pathway. Page 19 uh, is a fantastic pathway that we will turn into the interactive version and it'll be available to you if you're a subscriber. And 
Again, the first question there, how old are they? Then are they male or female? Is the patient circumcised or uncircumcised? And what does the urinalysis show? And then from there, a decision about when to treat and why. And so it's an excellent pathway. I, I find it to be an exceptional summary for this rather complex decision-making, which we all take for granted. Oh, is it a UTI or not? Just to throw some antibiotics at it. It's actually really not that simple, especially when you put in the age differentials. So keep an eye out for that interactive pathway and use it at the bedside. It will serve you very well. And thanks to both of those authors, Dr. Tishberg and Dr. Kasulis, for authoring this article. My, my one last takeaway, I loved their disposition point because I always think of the young kids, especially if you're thinking about sending them home, it's good to have that last stop point. And they said that there was a study looked at four risk factors for kids that were under three months old that you really needed to consider, like whether or not they had a secondary infection, whether they are higher risk. And it was, if they have a febrile UTI, are they less than 28 days old? Are they irritable? Is their CRP greater than 20? And is their pro-cal greater than 0.6? And then you need to look at those kids even more carefully and more cautiously to look for another source, because if there's more systemic inflammatory things, then you need to really be thinking about hospitalizing those kids and really be thinking about what antibiotics you're giving them, because there could be something else there. I, it gave me another thing to look at. I've really been trying to chase, what does a CRP mean in a kid for me? What does a pro-cal mean in a kid for me? How do I interpret that? And I felt like this article did a great job of giving me more points to, to have a sense of in my practice of, all right, this kid is passing these red flags and these labs everywhere for me. And that's why I'm going to get more aggressive about antibiotics and admission. Yeah. Yeah. And you're typically seeing those biomarkers in children who you're drawing blood on. So certainly in those who are less than two months, but even in that two month to 24 month age range, the ones on the younger side of that spectrum or the ones that have concerning exam findings, you're really worried about them. Those are the ones you're actually going to go after blood for. And in that setting, these kinds of biomarkers might be helpful. There's actually a good discussion of that on page 13, where they uh, discuss specifically CRP and ESR and how you can apply that if you're going to send those tests to your decision making. So yes, the younger they are, the, the more advanced you're going to get with your testing and the more invasive it gets. And so those can certainly be helpful. Also this month, in evidence-based urgent care is an article from Dr. Nedved about pediatric community-acquired pneumonia and diagnosis and management of it in the urgent care. But this is actually quite applicable to our practice in the emergency department, which is honestly why I love this periodical in general. If you're not a subscriber, I definitely recommend it. You can bundle it with your subscription. But it provides you with urgent care level approach and testing that's applicable anywhere and that's safe. And this is a great review of the evidence for pneumonia in pediatrics. We're in such a bad respiratory season right now. And I found this to be just a great refresher in the things that you can use to give parents an idea of when it's a good idea for antibiotics, when it's a good idea for chest x-rays, when it's a good idea to get more aggressive and get labs. And I, I think that's a really good thing to be confident in because parents can sense your level of confidence about these things. And if you're sure that this is the right thing to do for this kid, or you're sure that you don't know and you need more information, they're going to respond to that. And I think this will really help with every febrile cough. Does my kid have pneumonia patient that you're going to see in the next month? Yes, very well summarized. The pathway here begins with the question of, are they ill appearing? Do they need to be transferred to the emergency department? And that's where all of our urgent care pathways begin. But assuming they're not ill appearing, then the next question becomes, do they have some kind of viral etiology? There is a table on page five 
variables used to distinguish viral from bacterial pneumonia that kind of helps guide you in what some of the presenting symptoms might be that can point you in one direction or another. If they're younger than age five, just purely based on their age, it's more likely to be viral. If you're in the midst of some kind of ongoing viral epidemic in your community, certainly if the onset was slow, if they have associated rhinitis or wheezing, and if they've already been on antibiotics but had a slow or no response, those are all some of the things that can point in the direction of a viral process. If you're obtaining biomarkers, low white blood cell counts, CRPs less than 20, procalcitonin less than 0.1, all of those can also suggest this is viral. And then if you happen to obtain imaging, which by the way is not required, but if you did get imaging and all you saw was interstitial infiltrates bilaterally, then that can point you in the direction of a viral process as well, since it's not a dense lobar pneumonia. Things that increase your risk in adults for pneumonia and in the older children would be rapid onset, high fever, tachypnea, lobar alveolar infiltrates on the chest x-ray, and then rapid response to antibiotics if they were already on them. All of those suggest that this was actually truly a bacterial process, but some of that can be obtained from history and physical examination and give you your suspicion for whether or not this is viral or bacterial. And then the next decision point is concerns for complications or atypical etiologies, or are they high risk? And so the high risk patients are people with some kind of underlying pulmonary condition. So if this child has bronchopulmonary dysplasia, for example, they're at higher risk. If they have some kind of underlying neuromuscular condition or immunodeficiency, all of those put the child at higher risk and in a different category and might push you toward actually getting the imaging. Otherwise, imaging isn't necessary. You can certainly treat that patient clinically with a course of oral antibiotics and have them follow up. So you don't have to feel pressured to get that x-ray. I think oftentimes, especially early on, I tell parents, look, the x-ray doesn't show a lot early on. This just seems like it started. It's more gradual onset. It doesn't tell a good bacterial story. I would rather wait to see an x-ray in a few days if the child is still sick or gradually getting worse because I think we'll see something then that I would think about treating, whereas the likelihood of seeing something now is very low. And I think that this article supported that practice, that x-raying kids that look viral to you is not really going to lead you anywhere unless you're worried about a foreign body, unless they tell a great story for a sudden onset. And, and a really high fever and they're hypoxic and tachypnic. But I, I think that's really what it is. That really, the kids that look sick, you should get more information. The kids that look like your everyday viral stuff and it's only been a day or two, you can feel pretty good about not x-raying them unless there's something really abnormal about their exam or their story. Yeah. And that approach with parents, at least I found in my own clinical practice, works quite well saying, hey, if this was my child, this is what I would do. I'm pretty confident in this approach. It works very well and I'm happy to use it for your child. So here's what I recommend. And then you can discuss whatever their concerns are. And it's okay to say, what are your concerns with that kind of approach? Or what are you worried about in that kind of approach to bring out that question and that answer from the parent? When it comes to empiric antibiotics, amoxicillin is the first line agent, surprisingly there, but it's a very simple antibiotic. And the Resistance for strep pneumonia in the community has gone down in the age of vaccinations. And so amoxicillin is a good choice. If you suspect they have a typical pneumonia, then you can add a macrolide in that scenario. And that's also guided by your local antibiotic resistance. But azithromycin in that scenario is the first line agent recommended. 
that's table two. And then table three, if you're actually going to hospitalize this patient, now this is typically beyond the scope of the urgent care scenario, but again, very applicable to the emergency department setting. If you're going to be hospitalizing this patient, what's the first line therapy? And this table is exceptionally well-written. You've got empiric therapy for presumed bacterial pneumonia, empiric therapy for presumed atypical pneumonia, that's ampicillin or penicillin GIV with a bunch of alternatives there, and then azithromycin for the atypicals. And then you've also got a whole set of recommendations for patients who are not fully immunized, where the antibiotic spectrum is a little bit broader and your initial first-line therapy is actually ceftriaxone or cefotaxime. So things to consider if you're going to hospitalize someone, all very well summarized there in table three. But in most of your children that you're going to be seeing in the urgent care setting, table two applies very well for oral therapy. And even in the children we see in the emergency department who are going to be going home well appearing with a suspicion for pneumonia who need antibiotics, it's an excellent table to have in your back pocket. And it will be there in the interactive version of this pathway when it is published. My one curious guy, quick deep dive on this was that I really loved how in 2000 they put out the seven valent pneumococcal vaccine and just pneumococcal pneumonia dropped right off. And then there were some other strains that kind of came in and replaced it. But then in 2010, they came out with the 13 valent, you know, conjugated new pneumococcal vaccine. And I really just want to know, why didn't they make it 14, Sam? Because then it would have been twice as good as the old one and given you twice as much coverage. Just add on one, maybe a little dangerous, maybe not dangerous at all. Just add on one more pneumococcal antigen into your mixture. Then you could say this vaccine is twice as good as the old one. Where was the marketing guy? to sell that vaccine. Because if you told me this vaccine is twice as good as the old one, I would immediately buy that for my kid. Covers twice as many bacteria. If you told me it's 94% better, (laughs) I'm not as excited. I'm not. I just, it doesn't make the same pitch. It is 1.99 times better. So I just want the vaccine. I want the vaccine designers to come at me on the internet. I just, I want to hear why it couldn't have been 14 because I feel like there was room there for science and the sales team to meet in the middle because I think it could have been twice as good as it was. You're absolutely right. You're also the guy who drives by the gas station and sees the 0.99 at the end of the price. It just irks you, doesn't it? You're like, a thousand percent. Just looking at even number. $3.19 and 99 hundredths of a cent. Just round it up already. It's just silliness. I, I actually round those in my head and I'm like, oh, that's what gas costs right now. We're like, oh, the price of that car, it's not $39,000. It's $40,000 in tax. That's right. Just stop. That's right. The, the major drive home points from this article that they put in the points and pearl section, an excellent summary, are that you should consider occult pneumonia in infants and children with high fever and leukocytosis if you've obtained a lab sample, even in the absence of respiratory symptoms. So sometimes they will have upper abdominal pain as a presentation for a lower lobe pneumonia, which can be a little bit harder to make as a diagnosis. And to suspect bronchiolitis or a viral etiology in children who are under the age of two presenting with respiratory symptoms and a fever, even if it's up to 101.9. And that an aspirated foreign body or asthma should be considered if they have recurrent symptoms or recurrent lobar pneumonia. So if this is not their first visit to your urgent care and you're seeing them again and they still have an abnormal finding on imaging, that should start to trigger something in your mind saying, wait, something else is going on here. There is no single historical or physical exam or laboratory finding that should be relied on to diagnose pneumonia, even the x-ray itself. Remember, the x-ray changes can take time to resolve. If they have a history of recent infection, that can skew that finding as well. So 
just remember it's a summary of all of the things that you find that bring together that clinical picture. And lastly, antimicrobial therapy is not routinely required for preschool-aged children with community-acquired pneumonia, so you don't have to feel pressured to give that antibiotic to someone under the age of five because it's usually viral, and you can confidently tell that to a parent. I think I used to really try to decide, does this need antibiotics or does this need steroids? And I think now I've gone a little more of splitting those decisions and saying, okay, do I think this child has a bacterial pneumonia that needs treatment, whether that's typical or atypical? And then I like to almost always, if I don't have a clear history of bronchitis and I don't, or, or more of a bronchospastor charismatic picture, I tend to try an albuterol treatment for a kid. Because I think parents like to see, try that, see if it would help. And a lot of times they're real honest with you. If it didn't work, they'll be like, they're the same. The cough is the same. The breathing's the same. It didn't make a difference. Or if they're like, wow. And they know their kids, they're really worried about them. They're staring at them. They can tell you if they responded to the treatments or not. And if they respond, then I tend to reach for some Decadron and then a second dose for home in 48 hours, or at least giving them a nebulizer or something so that they have that because they're going to be worried about their sick kid for the next couple of days. And I, I like to have a sense of let's try things and see what's going to work for this kid because they don't always have to be wheezing to have a bronchospasm there that'll respond to some treatments and some steroids. You love yourself some Decadron. That Decadron for home, man, I want that to be called the Eckler so bad, I can't even tell you. I wrote that at the bottom of one of the case reviews. What a great use of the Eckler. <laughs> it is the Eckler therapy for everything. What do you oh, have? Nothing the little Decadron can solve. Just, just here's some Decadron for at home if it comes back in a couple of days. Your migraines, your mild asthma, your COPD. Keep smoking, but here's your albuterol. And That's here's right. Your that's evidence-based urgent care. That is the January issue. And again, thanks to Dr. Nedved for authoring that article on pediatric community-acquired pneumonia, another excellent summary. So look for that interactive pathway if you're a subscriber to be used at the bedside as well. And that's it for us for this month's episode. Thank you, TR. Great to see you, brother. We'll catch you again in the new year. That's right. We'll actually, this is the new year. So. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the January. Welcome to the new year. Great to see you again. You go. <laughs> No, I'm you know, sorry. I'm this totally is the meta universe. <laughs> we are in the new year. Now. We are in the new year. It's Welcome okay. to Fight Four, Sam. That's right. That's right. By the time you hear this, will be that's the new year. If you're our listener, that's right. That's right. We're gonna leave that little that little edit in there. That that that's a little. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Until next time. And that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to go to ebmedicine.net and get your CME credits if you're a subscriber. And while you're there, check out all the fun things that we have available for you, for your education needs, and for your bedside clinical practice. Until next time, everyone, be safe.